I am not interested in having my work accepted and read by that crowd. I'm interested in the person who is sitting at home and trying to survive, who is dealing with violence, domestic abuse. I'm writing for the immigrant, the refugee, the person pumping gas. I'm interested in finding ways to work together to be okay and be kind to one another. And like, that's it. Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the inimitable Rupee Core. In so many ways, it feels like Rupee Core needs absolutely no introduction at all. She's the writer and poet behind three best-selling books, Milk and Honey, The Sun and Her Flowers, and Homebody, which have sold a cumulative 8 million copies worldwide and been translated into 42 languages. In 2017, Core was named in BBC's 100 Women list, and in 2019, the New Republic named her the writer of the decade. To young women everywhere, Core's tiny, punchy, powerful poems have resonated across Instagram, her four million followers enjoying the way her work touches on love, loss, trauma, healing, femininity, and migration. In this chat, we talk about what it's like to write about trauma, the experience of exponential growth on an international stage, and why now, more than ever, Ruby's teaching herself that her time is not always best spent working. Ruby was an absolute delight. Her energy was genuinely infectious, and we are just beyond excited to share this chat with you. Here's Ruby. Rupi Kaur, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. We are so excited and so flattered that you are coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat. Rupi, we start with every guest at the very beginning, at childhood. So we want to ask you, how would you describe yourself as a kid? Ooh, we're already going to start off in a very depressing place. Great. (laughs) I would say that I was... Quiet, very melancholy, and painfully shy. Do you remember having friends? Oh, yes. So I didn't have any friends in kindergarten because I didn't know English. And we, I didn't have any older siblings. So I'm the oldest of four and my parents didn't speak any English. So I moved here when I was, moved to Canada when I was three and a half. And when I went to school, I still didn't know English. And so I remember that being such an isolating experience and just sitting in a classroom and people are just talking and it sounds like gibberish. And I was like, wow, have I been, it felt like I'd been abducted by aliens and put onto a planet with people who were human beings, but sounded nothing like it. Like that's what it sounded like to my five-year-old brain. And then I had one amazing friend from grade one to four, and then we moved, and then I had one friend in grade five, and then in sixth grade, I met my best friend. We went to middle school together, we went to high school together, we went to university together, and I've always actually had, since then, a very small, tight-knit group of girlfriends who 
have really just like carried me through the best and worst moments of life. I want to know, when we talk to a lot of people who say they were shy, kind of melancholy kids, it's often not surprising when it turns out that they're incredibly creative when they get older. Did you find that you escaped into your mind and kind of made up stories in your mind or found that some source of solace? Definitely. I turned to art right away. Right away, I was painting and drawing with like what little materials I had. I was at the age of like four using art as a tool to not only escape, but express what was happening inside for sure. You grew up in a family of four kids. Your dad was a truck driver who worked basically all week round. You write in your new book, Homebody, when you're an immigrant, you keep your head down and stay working. What are your memories of your dad's work when you were a little girl? He was always at work. I mean, he drove from like one end of the continent to the other as I write in the poem and I would see him um, once a week because that's how long his trips would take and when he was home he'd be like resting and sleeping and preparing to go off the next day because he'd get like one day off so dad was really like MIA for most of my life growing up because you know he was never at any of the birthdays or any like parent teacher interviews always sort of working and my mom when they moved over here they decided together that she would be a stay-at-home mom because we couldn't afford any sort of like child care and so she took care of us while he was like hustling for the six of us and so now I mean he's still working I'm begging him please retire stop it now. I can take care of us. And he's just like, no, no, no. Like I have to keep going because like, what else do I have to do? But now it's nice. I get to see him a little more often. It really did sound like reading the poem in the book about your dad's work that I guess his treatment in the workplace was the first time you truly witnessed the intersection of race and class and how non-white people were treated in your hometown. Can you speak to that for us? Yeah. These are stories that, I mean, he's shared with me over the years, but especially during the pandemic, because we spent so much time together, he was more open about. And I mean, he worked for free a lot when he came over because they said, you know, you're not experienced. You need to drive free for a couple of months and we need to see to make sure that you can do it. And then then we'll start paying. And then when they were paying, they paid him five cents for every mile he drove. And it was just ludicrous. And, you know, he didn't have the language or the resources or the network to understand what was right and what was legal and fair. And so that's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for sure. And I think it's something that I'm still trying to process and come to terms with. You once told The Guardian, for South Asian women, you're supposed to be quiet and not have those opinions and these opinions. You use your voice to not just tell your own story, but the stories of the women around you and people everywhere. Was that loudness and I guess that shamelessness something your parents instilled within you? Like, where did it come from? I think it definitely came from (laughs) definitely my dad because he is... He has such a revolutionary spirit. I mean, he is a refugee because of of human rights abuses that were happening back home in India at the time. Six, my community, I'm sick. And so in 1984, we'd experienced a genocide. And during the 
late 80s, early 90s, sick men were being persecuted, disappeared, picked up by police and killed in fake encounters. And because my dad was a visible sick man, he was targeted. And so having that experience when we moved here, like I remember growing up with protest signs. And every time there was a protest downtown Toronto, this man would drag me and I'm holding up signs I can't even read. And like, he would, anytime at the local Gurdwara, which is our temple, they would have like speech competitions. He would be like, you have to sign up. And then he would totally cheat, write my speech for me. So I'm like a little nine-year-old going up on stage, reading these gigantic words that I don't understand <laughs> about these political situations I don't understand because they're so complicated. And so this is this was our dinner table conversation. We were always talking about it's we've been a political family because of what we've experienced. And I think that instantly led to my creative work because there's always been this sense of justice must be served. And my first early poems were all about the, that genocide. My I've hit the stage because. I wanted to bring awareness to those issues. So my parents were a little bit confused by it at first because they just didn't understand spoken word poetry. But once the, my first book was published, my dad was like, oh, okay, like I get it now. Like books are something that I can understand. But the spoken word poetry and the stages, he was like, I don't understand what you're doing, but okay. <laughs> it's so interesting to me that you bring up the dinner table because I'm a loud woman as well and I think certainly having a family environment where everyone debated things and discussed things over the dinner table and over dinner every night and all the kids got to have a say I'm one of four as well it's such an interesting parallel what about feminism for you when did you become a really strong outspoken feminist is that something you discovered in your teens it's like yeah it's always been there I just understood that it was just the way of being. And maybe it comes from just how we were raised and how we were valued. Within my community and across India, you'll see that the rates for female infanticide are so high. And female infanticide is when the girl child is, you know, killed because boys are more valued and like for a bunch of different reasons. And when I was born... My father wasn't there at the time, but my grandmother called him to let him know that my mom had given birth and it was a girl and she was so sad about it and she was crying and that's very common. And instead of there being a note of celebration, it was almost like grief. Like she was sorry to be delivering such bad news. And my dad said to her, you're not the one who had a daughter born in their house. So like you, you have no reason to cry. Like I'm happy. And like, that's the end of that. I don't want to hear it. That sounds like something that everyone should say. But unfortunately, it's not the mentality everybody had at, in that place at that time. And so that idea, I think, very much comes from my parents. And then my parents went on to have another daughter. And then the relatives were like, oh, my God. And then they went on to have another daughter. And I remember my sister, the one who's my third sister, She's six years younger than me. And I remember the difference when people came over to see the sadness. They were like, oh, like, we're so sorry for you. And it just lit a fire in me. Like, what is wrong with people? And then the difference when my brother was born. 
oh my God, the celebrations, the joy on their face, not in my parents' face, because they've always treated us equally, but in the people who came to visit. And this is an issue of that just it goes so deep and I mean it's very very complex cultural and blah 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 I can go into it but I I don't want to get into that right now but I think that because of those experiences I've always understood right and wrong and my father is one of the first feminists in my life and never ever treated us differently no matter who around him expected him to Another quote that you gave, Vogue Portugal, I loved. You said, poetry is how I move through life, through my best and worst moments. Poetry is how I process my experiences, how I reflect, how I recover. A lot of your poetry does sort of explore childhood and adolescence and I guess a lot of those precarious coming-of-age moments. Is it difficult to sometimes free yourself from past experiences because so much of your work is retracing them? Or do you think this is just central to your sense of self? I think it's central to my sense of self. I mean... I don't really, yeah, like I don't feel held back by it. I think if anything, it's something that just like lives inside you. And like as you grow, you know, you're experiencing different challenges and then you write about those. But I do visit past challenges perhaps I've already written because I reflect on them differently now as a 28-year-old versus as a 21-year-old. And so... I kind of revisit them for those reasons. Also, I was naive to think after I published Milk and Honey that, oh, all these things, all this trauma that I dealt with while writing this book, it's just gone and it's healed and like, yay. No, it doesn't go anywhere. You learn to make peace with it, but it still lives inside of you somewhere and it can come up at any point in your life. And so it just becomes a part of your thread work, I think. And there are, I mean, that entire first chapter in Homebody was difficult to edit. I think writing it is very cathartic because like you feel certain ways in writing, you get it out. But then when you have to like go in again and edit it, that's a little bit difficult to do because you're like, oh my God, I don't want to fall back into this like depressive state of mind while I'm editing these poems about depression. But I think it's just what I've learned to do is just like take breaks. I used to be so hard on myself. i Be like, I have to write for eight hours today. Otherwise, I didn't have a productive day. And now I'm like, listen, I'm going to edit this poem that is really, really dark and depressing. And I'm going to get emotionally exhausted after like 30 minutes of it. And then I'm just going to go watch some TV and then come back to it again when I'm ready. I mean, as you just touched on there, you do explore some trauma in that first section of Homebody in particular. And we want to know what compels you to be so generous and open with your readers. It's incredibly generous to share some of the things you do. And we want to know why you do it, because it would take a huge toll on you mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, I do it because I can't write about anything other than my truth. I tried to avoid writing that first chapter about depression and anxiety and my struggles with mental health for a very long time because I didn't really understand what I was going through. So I thought that nobody would understand what I was going through. And so I tried to write about other things and I was just constantly hitting a wall. And everybody around me kept saying... You know, you just have to write your truth. You can't lie. Like, you can't pretend that you aren't going through this. And 
that's when I was like, okay, listen, I'm just going to write these poems and whether I publish them or not, that's a different story, but I have to write them to get them out of me. And like, that's how I've always written. I realize I've never really written for anybody else. I've written what I've needed. And so during Milk and Honey, I was processing like heartbreak and like the fuck boys I was fucking dealing with. And during Homebody, I'm processing my brain. And so I feel like it's, easy for me to share only because I don't know how any other way of existing. And really at the end of the day, like sharing and expressing is what I've always wanted to do. And so I, yeah, like if somebody paid me to write, like sometimes people are like, Oh, can we commission you to write a piece about so-and-so? I would love to, but I can't because I will fail miserably at it because unless it is my truth or I feel emotionally connected to it in some way. I'm just not able to do it because I really believe that the poetry comes to me and I don't go toward it. And so it just has to feel right. I think one of the most well-told stories about you and your rise to fame is about the time you published that photo, that very moving photo on Instagram showing your pants stained by period blood. And for those people listening who may not remember that story, it was deleted twice by Instagram to which you published a viral letter where you wrote, their patriarchy is leaking, their misogyny is leaking, we will not be censored. One of the most interesting parts about this story for me, Rupi, was a quote you actually gave Rolling Stone about it where you said, of the day you published that letter, I think that day this anxiety came upon me that's never left. There was so much hate from literally every corner of the planet. What did you mean by that line, that day, this anxiety came upon me that's never left? What happened that day? Well, that day, so I took those photos for a school project, posted them because I felt really safe sharing them. Like I had a small readership online and like very sweet and I'd shared poems about periods before and so in my little naive 21 year old brain I was like yay cool something that my readers might relate to or find interesting I didn't think that in two days I was gonna end up on the front page of reddit the new york times buzzfeed you name it and it just made me so visible that I, I mean, I wasn't prepared for it. I was in the middle of doing final exams in what was like my second last year of university. And all of a sudden I am getting rape threats and death threats from men on every corner of the world. And I didn't, even know how to process any of it because there's nothing that can really prepare you for that sort of like viral moment that I think from the outside might look cool, but it just really, 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 really messes you up. And I was instantly just a little bit traumatized from the thousands of letters I was getting a day that were so scary and unkind. And I never really dealt with that anxiety because it just went straight into, you know, milk and honey and like, la, 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 and then the sun and her flowers and then touring for two years straight and then waking up one day and being like, ah, I'm not okay. And that's really what homebody, I feel like, is about, is about sitting still and dealing with the things that we have perhaps been ignoring for too long. (laughs) I think it's just undeniable that you've experienced the very best and the very worst of social media. You touched on it then that 
amidst all this international news coverage, milk and honey started selling in huge colossal numbers. What was going through your head at that time? I mean, you obviously didn't have time to process the anxiety and the sadness that comes with being trolled online, but you probably did have time to process the fact that the book was just going absolutely bananas, for lack of another word, around the world. What were you thinking in those early few months of milk and honey just selling crazily? I don't even, I feel like for the last couple of years, I have not even been able to sit and think probably until this year when like the pandemic hit and I really had to just sit down. Like I remember when it started to sell, it was still the self-published edition. And so, yeah, it was selling and I was like, oh, wow. But then what started to happen, it was like one thing after the other publisher contacted me. And they were like, we want to publish the book. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. Like, let me find a lawyer real quick. Uh, I don't have a book agent. I don't have a manager. Scramble, scramble, scramble. A couple months later, book comes out. I graduate that month. I buy my LSAT prep books because I still want to go to law school and be a lawyer and like figure my life out. And then it's like, tour, tour, tour. Okay. I think up until The Sun and Her Flowers, I didn't even think this was my job or something that I could like live off of. So it took me some time to process. And I think it feels, I feel very lucky and I feel very blessed to have a community of readers who are so kind and so thoughtful. And I'm finally after like five years in a place where I am super confident and relaxed and just like, okay, I'm ready to give myself and my readers the best of me. You touched on this just before when you said you self-published Milk and Honey first before a publisher picked it up and republished it. And I want to know, do you think that was an important lesson in just backing yourself and doing the thing? Oh my God, yes. And let me say that I am still backing myself and doing the thing because the thing is nobody wants to bet on something new. And that was the issue with Milk and Honey. Poetry wasn't really big then. And, you know, everybody kept telling me, my professors, like, nobody really publishes poetry. There's no market for it. So these are all the other things that you can do. And I was just like, no, like, I know how I want my readers to experience my work. And it's going to be from cover to cover. And um, the readers that are going to enjoy my work will find me. And, like, I'm going to leave the rest up to the universe. And so that's what I did. And, I recently filmed a streaming special as well. And, you know, we tried to pitch it everywhere. We were like, oh, like, you know, I tour the world and I do the show and da, 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 da. it's like always sold out. Like, really, you can like trust it. Look at all the data, <laughs> whatever that means. And they were like, yeah, no. And so at first I was like, oh, this is so frustrating. Like, what do I have to do to prove myself to these people? And I was like, well, I'm just going to have to do it all over again, all by myself, the way that I self-published Milk and Honey. I'm going to have to film a whole ass streaming special and go that route. And so that's what we're doing. And I think it's beautiful because you get to control the creative and you get to own the creative. And especially for someone like me, whose soul is tied so closely to what she creates, I like to have that ownership and that sort of direction over it. 
As with anything that has just incredible and almost unmatched mainstream success, detractors will sometimes come. And for you, it's often about the accessibility and the simplicity of your art. But I loved this explanation you once gave NPR about why your work is how it is. And you said, I think about who I was creating art for from the beginning. It was for myself and for people that didn't have access to certain types of English language. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that always makes me laugh when people they're like, oh my God, your work is so accessible. Like, uh." and I'm like, oh my God, what? I love how accessibility when it comes to literature is suddenly a bad thing. But for some reason, accessibility in other parts of the world is like a good thing. And I think it just goes back to the fact that literature was always reserved for a certain class of people. And that's why they publish, for example, historically hardcovers come out first because they're much more expensive and a certain class has access to them. And then a year later, publishers publish the cheaper mass paperback. And then that sort of trickles down to the regular folk, whatever that means. And so I am not interested in having my work accepted and read by that crowd. I'm interested in the person who is sitting at home and trying to survive, who is dealing with violence, domestic abuse. I'm writing for the immigrant, the refugee, the person pumping gas. I'm interested in finding ways to work together to be okay and be kind to one another. And like, that's it. Coming up after the break, Rupi reads us one of her incredible new poems from her new collection, Homebody. But first, a word from today's sponsor. How do you feel about the term instapoet? Do you find it reductive or do you welcome that with open arms? I think it depends on who is using it. Some people use it with like a very positive connotation and then others use it with a a very negative connotation. And I always find it interesting. I feel like that term is used to disenfranchise young women, especially not only young women writers who are finding space in the literary world who would not have been been accepted by the gatekeepers, but also it's quite dismissive to the millions of young women readers across the world. Like I feel like whenever young women gather around something, all of a sudden it's not taken seriously and it's quite a sexist way of looking at it. This is quite funny because it reminds me a lot of this quote that um, Priya Kyra Hanks wrote about you for The Guardian and she wrote, like many pop musicians before her, she commits the sin of engaging with a demographic whose taste is often seen as a byword for bad quality. I want to talk about that and your community so much because there has to be something to that, this idea that if something is popular among a certain demographic of young women, it must automatically be lowbrow content or not as credible. (laughs) Yeah, and it just goes back to what I said, like... Who is saying that? Like, who? I want to see who is saying that because it just sounds extremely sexist and dismissive. I think that if we look at research, young women, we have so much purchasing power globally. And the fact that we are able to gather around issues, whether it be the issues that I cover in my work or any sort of issues... I think that those have to be taken seriously. They can try to dismiss us as much as they want, but clearly we're not going anywhere. How do you actually do that though, Rupi? I think it's like one thing to say, oh, well, 
the detractors are one thing, but I'm just going to ignore them. That in real time actually takes a bunch of courage and a bunch of strength to be like, you know what, I'm going to stick to my guns. I know what I'm doing. And these people can, for lack of a better term, shut the fuck up. How do you actually have that resolve though? Like where does that come within you to be like, you know what, no, they want me to shut up, but I'm not going to shut up and I'm not going to go away. I think at a certain point you just don't give a fuck anymore. And also like it just kind of makes a person laugh. Like your existence, like I tell this to all my friends and this is what my friends tell me if I'm ever like having a down day, like your existence bothers someone so much that they are taking time out of their day to bring you down. And I think about the amount of times like I've hopped on someone's profile or someone's YouTube video and left something nasty. I've never done that in my life. So I just feel like genuinely, I feel bad for those people. Like imagine how sad it is to live in that brain that you have to go to those extents to make yourself feel better. And I think that's always a perspective that I've seen it from. And like, then I just, I'm like, eh, like, this is not about me. I'm like living my life, telling my truth. And the thing is you can't win them all. In your book, you do talk about, or you discuss women being starved of space and how that starvation makes us fear that other women will take our place. What does your personal journey looked like of working through internalized misogyny? Because I feel like we all kind of have one. Yeah. So I would say that, um, I've been very lucky to have a strong group of women around me who really paved the way for me, but also saw this world and this version of me before I could. These were the women who were my friends and forced me to record videos, forced me to put up a website, forced me to put up a YouTube page and have an Instagram. And I remember before I met these women, I was like, maybe it was in high school. I used to be for a minute, one of those girls who was like, I feel like my guy friends are like much easier to hang out with. Ugh, girls are so annoying. Like there's so much drama. And my really good friend, she's a couple years older than me. And I had just started doing community organization. She looked at me and she was like, we weren't close then. We had just met. And she's like, you do realize you're a girl, right? Like you realize that, right? And you sound like big time self-hater. And I was like, I had never heard of the term self-hate before. And I just sat there and I like unpacked that. And I was like, oh, you're right. Why am I saying that about my own? Like who and where is that coming from? And I realized that it came so much from this person that I had dated at the time who constantly was feeding these ideas into my head about how like girls are so like this and girls are so like that. And I was peddling to that to be more accepted by the men in my life. Like I was just playing to them. And so that was like something that I like had to work through to the end, through the end of high school. And the funny thing is looking back, I didn't even have that many guy friends. Like my best friends in high school were all girls. And so like, who was I even like trying to impress? I think it, I was just trying to impress these like older kids that I just met. And I was like, guys, like, I'm so cool. I don't hang out with the girls. I only like hang out with boys. And they were like, no, you need to get your shit straight. Stop it right now. And so that was a big time lesson for me. And I sort of never looked back. But you know, that's what feminism is. It's a journey of growth and learning. And I hope that we can listen and talk to each other and allow each other to grow over time. 
I'm interested in what you think about this, Ruby, because Zara and I have been discussing this a lot back and forth, and we're trying to figure out why some women struggle so much with internalized misogyny, particularly when they hear women kind of shirk off shame and tell their own story. And I wonder if those who come to you and say negative things, particularly women, if they're struggling with their own internal silence, that they think that women's stories shouldn't be given airtime because they don't put much validity or I guess much value into themselves. Do you think there's anything in that, that when we see outspoken, loud, shameless women share their stories and share their truth, those who are still silenced and still struggling retaliate and feel really negatively towards those women when really that should be directed towards the patriarchy? For sure. And I think that perhaps a woman who hasn't sort of like come full circle and is in a place where she is comfortable perhaps accepting the things that she is struggling with or dealing with, but you see somebody else doing it, a part of your retaliation, that's a form of denial. You don't want to hear it because if you hear it, then you eventually have to own up to your truth and you're not ready to own up to your truth. So you try to shut them down. That's definitely a bit of it. I think it goes back to the scarcity complex, which I discuss in the book. My experience, I feel like over the last couple of years is like, it almost feels like sometimes there are some women who it feels like there isn't enough room for all of us. So when you see a woman at the top or you see a woman doing something you want to do, instead of embracing her, they want to knock her down so that perhaps they can take her spot, but not realizing that there are countless spots next to her that are available for the taking. But because we see such few women in places of power, we don't think that there is ample amounts of space. And like, that's why I say in the the poem, I say something like, you know, with men, they bring each other up and like they, their numbers grow as, and they multiply. And like, that's how we also have to be like, when we rise, when, when one of us rises, we all rise together. And I see that. I feel like, the amount of support I see women giving each other has been absolutely astounding. And I'm seeing, especially in the last like five, six years since I've been touring, it's been so, 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 so much love. But I think what we want to do now is see more systemic change. Because I think women are all like, yes, we love and support each other. We all want each other to succeed. But now it's like, okay, how do we change these different institutions and break these glass ceilings so we can actually move up. Like, I think we're all down with it, but now it's like, okay, how do we actually create systemic change, which is where we're hitting walls. Ruby, Mish and I read Homebody separately, but what we usually do when we read books before we interview an author is we kind of take photos of the parts that we love the most. And what was hilarious about this book is our photos often overlapped and we just loved so many of the same parts. And one of the things we wanted you to do today, if it was okay, is read one of our favorite poems for us, which was Productivity Anxiety. Yes, I would love to read that one. That's a poem that I wrote a while ago and I would have never, ever included. But then I was like, okay, it makes sense now. First, I thought it only made sense to me. But (laughs) then the pandemic hit and I was like, oh yeah, okay. I think we're all on the same page here. All right. Productivity anxiety. I have this productivity anxiety that everyone else is working harder than me and I'm going to be left behind because I'm not working fast enough, long enough, and I'm wasting my time. I don't sit down to have breakfast. I take it to go. I call my mother when I'm free 
Otherwise, it takes too long to have a conversation. I put off everything that won't bring me closer to my dreams as if the things I'm putting off are not the dream themselves. Isn't the dream that I have a mother to call and a table to eat breakfast at? Instead, I'm lost in the sick need to optimize every hour of my day so I'm improving in some way making money in some way, advancing my career in some way, because that's what it takes to be successful, right? I excavate my life, package it up, and sell it to the world. And when they ask for more, I dig through bones trying to write poems. Capitalism got inside my head and made me think my only value is how much I produce for people to consume. Capitalism got inside my head and made me think I am of worth as long as I am working. I learned impatience from it. I learned self-doubt from it. Learned to plant seeds in the ground and expect flowers the next day. But magic doesn't work like that. Magic doesn't happen because I figured out how to pack more work in a day. Magic moves by the laws of nature, and nature has its own clock. Magic happens when we play, when we escape, daydream, and imagine. That's where everything with the power to fulfill us is waiting on its knees for us. I can't tell you how beautiful that is. It's so powerful and it's sung out to Zara and I just owe so much. And we want to know what is your relationship with productivity anxiety now? Better than it used to be, (laughs) but still eternally struggling with it. I don't know. I, I think it's something that we all definitely experience. I don't know. I think it's like a problem. Like people say, oh my God, I wish I was more like you. Like, you just hustle so hard, and I'm like, okay, but, like, I actually think it's a disease because I get my self-worth and my value from my productivity and completing things, and if I don't feel like I'm working hard, I feel like shit. And the thing is, like, maybe it's because of how I saw, like, my dad work. Like, he was basically working himself to the bone. So that's my bar of hard work. And so I have learned to sort of like work, work, work until burnout and then do that over and over and over again. And so, I mean, it's, it's something that I've discussed in therapy, like, Hey, I really need to figure this out, but it is tough to change. I mean, it's hard to change, but what I had to do with this book was like realize that I'm experiencing a lot of burnout and I need to learn how to play again. That play is productive. And productivity is not working all the time. Productivity is balance. And it was, I I hit a place where I realized like if I don't learn how to work in a sustainable way, I may never work again. And that's when I had to really, really redefine what productivity meant. And I mean, I still struggle with it. Like if I don't like check things off my to-do list on a daily, I do feel like shit. But I think it takes constant work to redo that thinking. What does self-care and play look like to you now, particularly as you launch this other book and do have to work a lot? You know what? I have not been as busy as people would think only because I'm just like taking it easy. I've said no to mostly everything. This is only my second interview. 
that I've ever done for this book. The first one that I did was this morning. And so I decided I'm not doing any media. Like I used to do on tour eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours of back to back to back to back to back media. And it's just funny how now all the lessons that I've learned in terms of self-care, I'm actually being forced to live them out because I can't tour because we're in lockdown and because everything is closed. And initially I was scared and sad about that because I was worried about how the book is going to do. And I was like, I'm not doing enough. And I was like, you know what? I just have to take it easy. And so play has looked like just a lot of crafting, a lot of baking, lighting candles, listening to and meditating. Meditating is is like crucial to my self-care and my mental health. And so I think the first two weeks of Homebody being out was tough on me because I just felt like I'm not doing enough and the book is going to be a massive failure because I'm not doing enough. I'm not working myself to the bone. I'm not exhausted enough to say that I've done enough. And I just had to sort of give in and surrender and be like, you know what it is, what it is. Like it's out in the world. I did the best that I could. Now, like it's up to the readers and wherever it falls in the world, it is what it is. And I started to write again. You know, I write when it comes and when I want to, and I'm trying to develop a much healthier relationship with my writing. For a while, it wasn't healthy because I felt like I was a dictator in my own head who would force myself to sit down and force myself to write, even if I didn't want to. And as important as discipline is, a large part of creativity is also just putting the work away. And so, you know, this week or last week, I wrote two pieces and I was like, that's enough now. Like I can go live and be with my family and um, I'll come back to it when I'm ready. I had the urge of going back and to be like, all right, well, now let's start book four. And oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing if I could just release another book next year? And I was like, stop that right now. (laughs) Calm down. Bring it back. (laughs) Rupi, we finish every interview with the same question. And that is to ask, what is success to you? How do you feel successful in your life? I would say that in the moments where I am comfortable being still and I am satisfied and fulfilled with where I am internally, that is success, at least at this point. (laughs) Rupi, thank you so much. We know you don't do many interviews, so we are so glad that we could have had you here chatting to us and sort of answering all our questions. And thank you for all the work that you do. Your work is incredible and the world is much better for having you in it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This was so much fun. All my friends love your podcast. So I was like, yes, yes, yes. I want to see. I want to, I want to be on it. <laughs> Very Sorry. excited when you said yes and you have exceeded all our expectations. So thank you so, so much. We are huge fans over here. And yeah, we're just so grateful that you gave us your time. I appreciate it. It was so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Rupee Kaur. If you're wanting more from Rupee, buy her new book. It is called Homebody and we have popped a link for you to buy it in our show notes. Otherwise, you can find Rupee on Instagram at Rupee, R-U-P-I, Kaur, K-A-U-R underscore. 
If you enjoyed this chat, we have heaps more like it, nearly a hundred in fact. Just jump onto our website, shamelessthepodcast.com forward slash in conversations and check them out. We'll pop a link to that page in our show notes too. If this is your first time listening to Shameless, then welcome to the show. Every Monday, we release a wrap of the week that was in pop culture and every Thursday, an in conversation episode with someone we admire. The best way to support the show is click follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, or to recommend this episode to a friend. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Oh, hi, it's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week now. Every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.